Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Osceola's assassination of Wiley Thompson was probably the most famous such felling in American history. Up to that point, certainly made national news and confirmed a great name for Osceola. In this episode, we'll delve into the Thompson assassination. Who was Thompson? Who was Osceola? From where did Osceola hail? What was Osceola's background with the Seminole on the reservation? How did the U.S. Army look at Osceola? And what became of Osceola as the war progressed? Autodidact and all things Seminole Wars expert Jesse Marshall returns to give us the skinny on the story of Osceola in the Second Seminole War and to let us know something surprising about the welcoming committee Osceola expected to receive when he got to the Oklahoma Territory from the Amathla family. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. You, at the time, disputed that Osceola was behind the assassination of federal Indian agent Wiley Thompson outside the agency near Fort King in 1835. And yet, after Osceola was captured, he was never put on trial for the crime. That's always seemed strange to me. True, he was imprisoned, and he died in prison before being deported. There were no plans to try him. Why was this? Osceola is understood to have killed Wiley Thompson at Fort King. On December 28, 1835, and the question can be asked, why wasn't Osceola tried with this killing instead of being treated as a prisoner of war, essentially, and even being buried with full military honors at his death at Charleston in 1838? I don't have a specific answer. I've never seen a specific reference to this subject, but what comes to mind immediately is, under what jurisdiction would Osceola have been charged? The death of Thompson took place at the Indian Agency at Fort King, which was within the Seminole Reservation. And if the Seminole tribal authorities had indeed made a determination upon military action against the removal and perhaps had essentially signed the death warrant for Agent Thompson, then was Osceola acting on his own or was he acting in conformity with the determination of the tribe's leading councils? Secondly, Indians generally could not testify in United States courts, so the majority of those who would have been the witnesses to any plan for the execution of Thompson, their testimony wouldn't have been valid in a local court in any case. It's the old standard. Will it stand up in court? Well, they can't even get to a court to see if it will stand up. That aside, we need to ask ourselves, does it stand up in history? Much of what passes for history, of course, wouldn't necessarily convince a jury of 12 common people. And what I mean by that is we have an understanding of what transpired in the case of Osceola's assassination of Thompson. There are historical anecdotes that are given by people, military officers, particularly in Florida, based on what they were told. But let's imagine that Osceola was put on trial for the death of Wiley Thompson. Would a prosecution have been able to organize enough actual evidence and witness to convict Osceola of this incident? So I would suggest that the answer might be no. And that in itself might be the answer as to why no trial was forthcoming. 
if not in a civil court, why couldn't the Army try him? The Army in itself had no legal jurisdiction. So Osceola can just skate free? Osceola was subject to Seminole law. Seminole law? It seems a little hollow since his action was taken at the same time that the nation declared war on the United States. I would refer to Patricia Wickman's Osceola's legacy. Seminole law was the eye for an eye. You killed a Seminole, then your life was forfeit by all rules within the larger culture. And by all rights, from the description of Creek and Seminole law of the time, Osceola's life was indeed forfeit for having killed Charlie Amathla. It's claimed that Osceola imprisoned at Fort Moultrie shortly before his death had expressed a concern that Charlie Amathla's relatives who'd been with Black Dirt and were out west already, that they would kill him having killed Charlie Amathla before the war broke out. Charlie Amathla had a brother. His brother and his brother's band agreed to removal. What became of him? Yes, he eventually surrendered as well, and he died before they got out west. But other members of the family did make it to Oklahoma and did hold a grudge about Osceola. Nevertheless, that sounds like Seminole law for Seminoles who kill other Seminoles not sedating whites who have federal business on the reservation. Ciola was not an outlaw in that sense. He was subject to law. But when he killed Agent Thompson, or was a party to the death, certainly led the party which conducted the attack on Fort King, he didn't kill a fellow Seminole. He killed a United States citizen. So the jurisdictions are curious because he killed him within the territorial boundaries of the United States, but within the Seminole reservation where there was no local court courts existed within the counties of the territory of Florida as they were being organized. So this is one of the processes that was being undergone during the Indian removal. The issues with the Seminole Reservation and the Indian Agency were not unique to Florida. What are some comparable examples from elsewhere in the American South? During the same period in Alabama, there are vast numbers of squatters moving into the creek lands tens of thousands by 1836, and the governor of Alabama had seen to it that they commenced organizing counties and even had courts in session, which were acting within the reservation bounds of the Creek Reservation. This was contrary to the federal government's treaty, which treated all white people in the Creek or even Seminole lands or any reservation lands as intruders. But we'll take it from one of the commentators in the book Cracker Times and Pioneer Lives, one of the principal authors of that who grew up on the North Florida frontier near the Seminole boundary. He mentions that the people wanted law and order more than anything else. And again, having a borderland nearby where one set of laws predominated, namely those of the Seminole Nation, and then crossing this invisible boundary and then another series of laws predominated, namely those of the territory of Florida, just caused a certain amount of confusion. Confusion or vigilantism? We have the case of the eye for an eye and the Hogtown incident. The Seminoles looked for justice, and that led to a very bad day for one soldier mail carrier. Among the Seminole and the Creeks generally, that was sort of a law. Lex Talionis, sort of like an eye for an eye that if a warrior killed someone, there had to be a satisfaction. That warrior's life would then be forfeit to the relatives of the deceased. And if they could not locate and finish off the killer, they were within their rights to assassinate, if you will, or kill a relative of the killer. And 
This was presumed to be the case at the outset of the Second Seminole War. We had the incident at Hogtown where a few Seminole hunters had crossed the boundary and they killed a settler's cow when a group of white men arrested them and were flogging them. And a couple of the Seminoles came out of the woods while their comrades were being arrested and flogged. And a gunfight erupted, the details of which I'm not familiar and I doubt that we know exactly what happened, even with the accounts that we have. But at least one of the Seminoles was killed. Kinsey H. Dalton of the 3rd Artillery was the mail rider carrying mail through the Indian Reservation from Camp of Ada, Fort King. And I believe it was in August of 1835, he was waylaid and killed several miles from Fort Brooke, and the mail scattered and his body mutilated. And it was presumed that he had been killed in retaliation for the two warriors killed at Hogtown, rather than because the Seminole tribe as a group had decided to resist removal. In the southeastern states, what was going on with Indian removal was a huge power grab as well as a huge land grab. How did the state's authority benefit from Indian removal? The eastern states were satisfied at the Indian removal policy that it would place entirety of the acreage within the bounds of their states would then be under subject to state law and state authority and federal authority. And the Indians' authority was going to be transferred not extinguished, but transferred from these eastern reservations to new reservations to be established in the Indian Territory. We talk about American law and we talk about Seminole law. It's not clear that the federal government or the army understood Seminole law. And I would say it's probably a given that the Seminole did not understand the U.S. federal law or the state or territorial laws as they related to their own existence as a tribe on the reservation. It's hard to say what the Seminoles' comprehension of American law was. And I say that because when you read the transcripts of the various councils between the United States Indian agents and the Seminoles, or even the discussions between the American generals and the Seminoles during the Second Seminole War, frequently they allude to very basic principles of American law. And this suggests to me that the Seminoles were not familiar with American law and American ways. I recollect specifically an occasion in the late 1830s where General Jessup commented to some Seminole leaders during a period of negotiation that in the American system that wars were not made on a whim, that when the war was declared over, then there was no more violence, but that war was declared, there would be violence. In other words, it was... In our system, as soon as the war was declared at an end, there was the military action ceased. It did not take the form of a Hatfields and McCoys type blood feud. What system did the army have for prosecuting crimes? The army had its own system of laws and court martials, but did they have any jurisdiction over the Seminole? And the answer would be evidently no. So where does that leave the family of the victim of seminal violence. You can't determine on the jurisdiction whether they can be held to justice or not. In this case, it's not as if the army could appeal to Micanopi and say, please give us Osceola for trial. Seminoles would commit those violent acts as part of war parties. And when the war party was over, they didn't go out of their way to kill anyone when they weren't on a war raid. And there were white people that lived in the borderlands in the near 
or even in the seat of war zone throughout the war that were never harmed, most notably the Gamble family near the Swanee. They had been friendly to Tiger Tail before the war. And it was noted that while their neighbors were being burnt out and sacked, Seminoles never touched their home or outbuildings or ambushed any of their family members. All right, we've talked about Osceola, but who was Osceola? Where did he come from? What was it in his background or his makeup that made him a fierce warrior and an inspirational leader? When the Creek War happened, Osceola, who was a teenager or a boy, and then fled into Florida with his mother, Osceola to Tallahassee from Alabama. Tallahassee and Tallahassee are not to be confused as being the same tribe. The Tallahassee Band in Florida was a Seminole band that actually lived where the modern capital of Florida was or is today. Tallahassee is up in Alabama. Osceola had married and had a couple of wives and is generally ascribed to being joined with the Miccosukee, so perhaps his wife was a Miccosukee. There's a faction of Creek Indians called the Red Sticks, or the Red Stick Creeks. What made Red Stick Creeks Red Stick Creeks? Without getting into the folkways of the Seminole, of which there's a large amount of information about, when the Creek War of 1813 ended, a significant number of Red Stick Creeks, the essentially pro-British, anti-American bands, many of them surrendered, but a large number, over a thousand perhaps, came into Spanish Florida and joined with the Florida tribes. After 1821-22, when the United States acquired Florida, General Jackson was the first territorial governor of Florida, not for long, but he did mention in one of his statements of the time that he understood that well over a thousand red sticks had integrated or joined with the various Florida bands. By 1835, we see that that integration was pretty complete. Contrast this with the situation at the beginning of the War of 1812. When the War of 1812 broke out, the British encouraged the Indian nations along America's western and southern borders to erupt into violence on the frontiers, namely via the influence of Tecumseh. The influence of him and others led to a strong faction of the Creek tribe joining these war measures, and they were known by the name of Red Sticks because in preparation for their warfare, they manufactured war clubs painted red usually fixed with a piece of sharp iron a wooden spike etc and a thong tied to a hole in the bottom put around their wrists so they wouldn't lose it and this was a weapon that was symbolic of their resistance to the united states principally though in combat they still used their guns of which the british provided enormous quantities during the war through the gulf coast through Spanish Florida, uh, and even clothing and trade goods in large quantities to encourage this resistance. The Battle of Fort Mims, or Massacre at Fort Mims, if you will, the Red Sticks achieved enormous success, killed, I believe, over 300 Americans, but many of them were actually Creeks, but uh, pro-American. In fact, one of the leaders, supposedly, in that battle was Jumper, Odia Matla, who during the Second Seminole War in Florida was the sense-bearer of Micanopy and was the accredited leader of the attack on Major Dade's command. During the Creek War of 1813-14, the red stick was physically embodied in the weapon. I've never seen any reference to a red stick of that type being found or carried by any Seminole warrior during the 1830s. But just the fact that Osceola and his seven or eight men were referred to as red sticks could be a suggestion that they did carry the old-style red stick. Perhaps that's why they were so referred to. But 
Osceola was a boy when the Red Stick War transpired. We could speculate that perhaps Osceola was trying to reinvigorate the Red Stick movement in some measure. I think there may be some evidence presented to it in Brent Wiseman's book, Beads on a String, which discuss the archaeological evidences of Osceola's haunts on the Withlacoochee against the various historical evidences. Well, really, I don't think it's very clear at all why. But we know Osceola was born a creek and that he was referred to by the Seminoles as a red stick. And what exactly that meant in the 1830s, I don't think is particularly clear. So red sticks, big club, use them in battle. They all had them, but again, in battle, they seem to have used guns more than... In fact, in the penultimate battle of the Red Stick War, which many, by the way, refer to as a Creek Civil War, because by no means did all the Creeks join with the Red Sticks. A significant number of them remained in abeyance to their treaties with the United States. Even if they didn't like the United States, they mustered to fight the Red Sticks alongside U.S. forces. And at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814, the Red Sticks had built a fortification of logs, a breastwork of logs, and they had loopholed it so they could fire their guns safely through the loopholes at any attacking force. And when Jackson threw his American infantry and riflemen against that breastwork, his allied Creek and Cherokee forces were surrounding the rear of the camp across the river and backing it from the rear. And of course, Horseshoe Bend became a, a terribly bloody affair, but it did essentially end the war within hours. What were Black Dirt's observations about the Red Stick Creeks and Osceola? One of the curiosities that's notable in the Seminole War of the 1830s is when Black Dirt, the friendly Seminole, gave a list of the hostile chiefs and their numbers of warriors that they led, uh, particularly at Camp Izzard, which list was subsequently published in period papers. It mentions Osceola, and it says that he was a leader of several men of Red Sticks. We have this curious reference, and there's, there's actually a second, I believe, that... Uh, Prince's Diary mentions something about Red Sticks and Osceola as well. Among the Seminole, Osceola was recognized evidently as a Red Stick, but he had only seven or eight men in that particular grouping. What it meant by 1835, I couldn't say. But again, in 1813 to 1815, it was a large-scale distinction. And it was largely meaningless by the 1830s. Even Black Dirt supposedly had fought with the Red Sticks in the Creek and First Seminole War, even though he was commanding friendly Seminole warriors at Camp Izzard against Osceola and the rest. One army officer records some stories that Black Dirt told at Fort Brook about fighting General Jackson's troops in the old days. And here he is serving alongside many of veterans of those campaigns against the larger number of Seminoles 20 years later in December 1835. Osceola was well known at Fort King and along the borders with the Seminole Reservation. Why was this? So there's one contemporary reference that mentions that Osceola had acted in the capacity something like a sheriff for the Seminole enforcing the boundary, the goal and the law being in the United States side that the Seminole could not legally cross the boundary of their reservation 
into the United States or the territory of Florida. During the Seminole campaign of 1826-27, during which the number of Seminole were being rounded up and sent back into the reservation to clarify that particular point, there's even reference in the government papers that Seminoles themselves had captured many of the wanderers and had flogged them so that civil authorities had really nothing to do with that other than that portion of the Florida militia that was mustered on that occasion. That's the lone reference that I found to that being something that the Seminoles did attend to in a legal way. And unfortunately, it's not very specific. But again, there is that contemporary reference that Osceola had acted something like a sheriff on the Seminole border prior to the Seminole War breaking out. An old wag would say it's ironical that Osceola, who used to cross the reservation boundaries to detain Seminoles and take them into custody, was later detained and taken into custody by the U.S. Army. He is referenced as a sub-chief in some of the lists of chiefs that were unofficial made at that time. And at the Treaty of Payne's Landing, and particularly in the discussions between the Seminole leadership and Seminole agent Wiley Thompson later, who really had to attend to the removal after his appointment to the office of Indian agent to the Seminoles, Osceola was notable as being a particular character among the Seminole leadership, that he had the ear of the Seminole leadership. That was evident. From the descriptions of the reports, that seems to have marked Osceola. Who is this guy? He's not really a chief, but he clearly is influent because the chiefs are listening to him and he opposed the immigration. But he wasn't alone in that opposition. So that's not what made him stand out. It was that he was described as being somewhat different. And part of that may have been his mixed blood heritage being the essentially half Creek and half white. We know Osceola, as I mentioned at the start, for his assassination of Wiley Thompson. What unpleasantness befell Osceola that he felt he had to assassinate the Indian agent at Fort King to get his revenge? Shortly after the war commenced, there were some editorials appearing in American newspapers by persons claiming to be knowledgeable stating that at Fort King before the war, Osceola had been somewhat friendly with the young officers at Fort King, that he sat around the officers' barracks having a smoke with the officers on the porch, etc. So there was an interest. It was a mutual interest between warriors, you might say, but there wasn't anything, this particular gentleman, if what he was stating was correct, he didn't mark Osceola showing any Hollywood-type attitude it was merely a curiosity. The soldiers were, of course, in the Seminoles' country, so there was obviously going to be an interest there, and that was the point at which trade and communication between the United States and its licensed peddlers of goods to the Indians. They had to have a license from the federal government to sell anything to the Seminole. And consequently, Fort King and Fort Brooke were important points for that trade, and Osceola would have been there as much as anyone else, evidently. But again, he was marked because he was was a relatively young man of obvious uh, intelligence and influence. What did contemporary Seminoles have to say about Osceola? Well, Seminoles didn't have written records. They had some oral history. And in the early 20th century, some historians went out of their way to inquire of elders among the Seminoles 
if they knew tales of Osceola. And in the Florida Historical Quarterly early in the 20th century, some of these seminal oral histories are reproduced. And one of them was, I believe, from a Miccosukee elder who stated that Osceola was a creek and was among the Miccosukee and that uh, he was known for powerful medicine that bullets could go through him and not harm him. But didn't mention him as being a chief or having much more influence than any of the other chiefs. How did Thompson treat Osceola at Fort King? Thompson went out of his way to court Osceola and tried to bring him around to the immigration party. And there's the reference that Thompson gave Osceola a $100 rifle purchased in New York, which was a great gift. The Seminoles were, by one account, anonymous commentator who signed himself only Orson in 1836 in a period newspaper. A gentleman described the Seminoles as he knew them in the territory in the early 1830s, that their guns were as old as any you'd ever seen. Guns as old as any I ever saw, I believe, is his comment but that they still love shooting at marks and they were generally pretty good at it. And he says, so far as he could see, only the chiefs had really good guns. That's partly because American government agents frequently gave good rifles to the chiefs in order to get them to cooperate with various government action. So Osceola was evidently gifted a, a fine rifle by Thompson. There was an incident at Fort King at the agency not long before the war broke out where Osceola is described as getting out of order. In the official records, there's not much specifics about it. It just says that he was out of order and Thompson had the officers present arrest him and had him put in chains. There are a wide variety of historical accounts that have been produced since stating exactly why that incident transpired. There's one from the period that says that Osceola was evidently intoxicated, although it's from an anonymous account. Under the laws of the Union, in fact, one passed as late as 1834, it was illegal to sell liquor to the Indians. So if there was liquor among them, it had been smuggled into the reservation. Thompson, of course, had also was starting to use the, you know, he had tried a carrot and stick approach, and the stick was becoming more necessary to get the Seminoles to recognize that they had to go. And whatever the actual incident between Thompson and Osceola, Thompson reported that once he had Osceola in chains and his spirit seemed to be broken, he took that as an occasion to suggest to Osceola that if he changed his mind about immigration, he might be released and all forgiven. And so far as Thompson reports, Osceola took that occasion to agree that he would support the immigration and that, you know, he let him go and even came back into the post with some others and seemed amenable to the immigration. However, we jump ahead to 1848 when John T. Sprague was compiling his history of the Seminole War. And he includes a few narrative accounts by the Seminole leader, Alligator, or Halpata Tustanugi. And his statement is to the effect that for about a year prior to Major Dade's battle and the attack on Fort King, the Seminoles had been actively planning to resist by force the emigration. So Osceola's cooperation may have been largely feigned. We have to assume that, particularly in light of the understanding that Osceola led the party, which subsequently attacked Fort King on December 28, 1835, and killed Agent Thompson and Lieutenant Constantine Smith of the U.S. Artillery, as well as the Sutler, Erastus Rogers, and several other persons uh, present at 
the time, Fort King. We know that Osceola opposed the treaties of removal. After all, we have that illustration of him stabbing the knife through the treaty into the table. Apparently, the reporter who penned his article about it firmly behind printing the legend. There is the legend that he stabbed the treaty with a knife. There are certainly a lot of illustrations in various books produced in the 19th century that depict such. I've seen it claimed that there is such a rend in a duplicate image of the original documents, but perhaps you've seen the original documents. Does there appear to be any such rend of a knife blade in the document? I saw no knife blade mark, but of course they make a slit, so it may be hard to see it if it's lying flat. However, Dr. Andrew Frank, who's written about Osceola and presented about Osceola in the popular American imagination, has said he's seen the treaty and there's no knife marking. I've never seen any specific reference to a violent outburst by Osceola other than the reference to his arrest at Fort King by Thompson, the circumstances of which Thompson did not elaborate upon in his official report to Washington. We have only the second-hand and sometimes anonymous statements of exactly what led to that. But what we do know is that no matter what the difference was, Thompson used it to attempt to convert Osceola from resisting the removal to promoting it. And that ended up being an error on Thompson's part. What had Thompson done? As one contemporary said, chaining a Indian who, of course, had lived in the woods his entire life was probably his biggest mistake. But his second error was assuming that he had somehow managed by this show of force to cow Osceola. Whether he stabbed the treaty or not, it didn't change the outcome. It was still a treaty. That fact is sometimes lost in the illustrations of Osceola stabbing the treaty and rejecting it with great defiance. The story was promulgated about Osceola stabbing the treaty. It has this connotation that was a severing of the treaty. That's not the case. Osceola was subject legally to that treaty, whether he liked it or not, because he was a Seminole and the chiefs had signed it. So who was the audience for this story? Pretty certain it's just a tale that was, it's for white people's consumption. And if you told it to Seminoles, you'd be like, well, it's interesting. Osceola certainly didn't like it. And the description from some of, I believe, Thompson's and others' comments was that Osceola had the year of Micanopy during the proceedings. And it was obvious to Thompson that Osceola was influencing a great deal of the official statements being made in his presence. And that he found that annoying. And that's why he wanted to cultivate a friendship with Osceola and he gave him a rifle. And this one army officer published an account in 1836 that Osceola had frequently visited the officers' quarters and sat with the army officers, although he didn't speak English. Did he stab the treaty with his knife? Well, it's a case of the dog that didn't bark. Where are the contemporaneous accounts that say, in a dramatic moment, Osceola unsheathed his knife and stabbed the treaty in defiance? There are no such accounts. I would imagine if he engaged in any sort of violence that would have been recorded by the witnesses to the treaties. What do we know about what Osceola was thinking after putting up with this abuse? It's a lot of speculation about Osceola's mindset. He didn't write anything down. There's a few conversations with Osceola that were recorded, and that's about all we really have. We have also the intelligence of 
the Seminole prisoners and also some black Seminoles like Ansel, among others, quoted by Henry Prince regarding Osceola's wartime activities. But there are books filled with the legend of Osceola, but the only convincing one I've read so far is Patricia Wickman's Osceola's Legacy. The American army certainly felt that Osceola was influential. What can we say at our approach about how influential Osceola was among the Seminole? I think we overestimate Osceola's influence. I would refer to the book Osceola's Legacy by Patricia Wickman and the military intelligence such as it was from prisoners in the previous year before his capture. He was influential, but he wasn't a leader. The intelligence the army had from multiple sources was that he only actually commanded about seven or eight men as far as his band, and they referred to as red sticks. And Jessup mentions the same, chasing him out of the Wahoo Swamp and the statement of a prisoner was that he only had seven or eight men with him. But at Camp Izzard, Black Dirt, the friendly Seminole, said the same thing. That Osceola, he only commands about eight men. Now, it doesn't mean that others weren't looking to him, but he wasn't their leader particularly. He certainly did have an influence, and we know for a fact that he had a major influence with the Seminole leadership. We know from the negotiations about removal that he had the ear of Micanopy in the midst of the process. And we see it at Camp Izzard when the Seminoles were trying to negotiate with General Gaines to perhaps trade the northern half of their reservation in order to remain on the southern half, which the army was in a position to negotiate that, and the government didn't want to negotiate that anyway. Osceola was in that negotiation, so he was outspoken, but it doesn't mean that he was considered a leader by the individual warriors generally, or their leader. Nevertheless, he was a recognized presence and he did attend the conclave. With more than a decade of dealings with the U.S. Army, they knew the drill when they went into a fort or camp to parlay, and they played along with the protocol and euphemisms that the Army used to refer to their leader in Washington, and they would mimic it in return. Well, I kind of like that. When you read the pre-war council minutes, you see the frequent reference, which evidently was mutually agreed upon where the U.S. agents and the Seminoles referred to their great father in Washington, the president, some of the Seminoles themselves sort of perhaps reiterating some of that kind of with a comment like, well, we are his children and we must, but we want him to do good by us, things of this nature. As with other Seminoles who came to the Indian Agency or Fort King, Osceola witnessed daily training from the U.S. soldiers there. He and the other Seminoles were more impressed with the uniforms. John Bemrose, as a soldier in Florida before the war, mentions the troops would have tactical demonstrations of skirmish drill, etc., and Seminole warriors and chiefs would laugh at the mechanical manner of the skirmish drill that the troops were using for woods fighting. Whereas the Seminoles were a warrior culture where the individual heroism of the warrior was more important than the teamwork necessarily of combat. Although the Seminoles scoffed at the soldiers' demonstration of their military skills, they remained impressed with the Army's military uniform. When they had the opportunity, they seized and wore the Army uniform. Maybe not the big beaver skin hat, but they wore the jackets and the pants and belts and so forth that they picked up from fallen soldiers. Osceola, for instance, was spotted at the battles wearing army officers' coats. The Seminoles had an appreciation for gaudy clothing. They themselves dressed in a fantastical manner for ceremonial purposes, and they seemed to appreciate it when the soldiers wore their full dress. There's a comment by an army officer that when General Maycomb came to Florida in 1839, 
he chose to wear his full dress uniform with his bicorn and plumes and metal epaulets and everything. And that the Seminoles really seem to respect that. Whereas many of the commanders in Florida wearing essentially farmer's clothes had perhaps not so impressed the Seminoles. In other words, they see a chief, they know he's a chief because he's wearing all the bling. So in these various pre-war negotiations, General Clinch and the regular troops, they would have worn their parade dress, at least during the more formal occasions, to show off. After Thompson's assassination, Osceola rejoined the Seminole. He was seen at the Battle of Withlacoochee, and he was one of the negotiators at Camp Izzard. During the discussions between the Army under General Gaines and the Seminoles at Camp Izzard in early March of 1836, a parlay, the recorders of the discussion mentioned that the Seminoles present offered General Gaines, etc. They offered them the northern portion of their reservation north of the Withlacoochee River, offered it to the United States in return to be allowed to retain everything south of the Withlacoochee. Now, when the Seminole Reservation in Florida had been established with the Treaty of Moultrie Creek in the early 1820s, it had to be modified to include that northern tract because the Seminoles and even the American agents found that they needed that more northerly tract up toward north of the Withlacoochee, up past Ocala, etc. was some of the finest land in the reservation, and that's where a lot of the Seminoles ended up settling. So Fort King became the agency. But they offered all of that tract to the United States. But, of course, General Gaines's officers, namely Ethan Allen Hitchcock, etc., had to explain that we can't negotiate with you about that, but there's this treaty that we're here to enforce to remove you to the West. They did say something to the Seminole at that time that there's another agent of the government coming, namely General Winfield Scott, who on January 21st of 1836 had been given charge of affairs in Florida. Scott was just then building up his military forces to enforce the removal. But during that parley, Osceola was present, and Hitchcock, etc., record that when it was evident that the Seminoles were interested in peace and they were willing to surrender more land in Florida to keep part of their Florida reservation. There's a comment that Osceola made that was interpreted, and the conclusion of the white officers was that Osceola was insinuating that he was satisfied with the situation and he was willing to make peace. And by that, that he was satisfied, they felt that what he seemed to have meant, he was satisfied with the death of Agent Wiley Thompson. Also, of course, the skirmishes and the battle with Lacucci, etc., and, of course, the heavy fighting at Camp Izzard. The Seminoles kept saying they had lost many men and they didn't want to lose any more, and they were willing to trade again, half of their reservation, but it was too late. Treaty of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson essentially meant to the United States there was no Florida reservation. They had to go west. The matter did not end there. Although the war continued, there were from time to time negotiations, peace talks, removal discussions. One of these resulted in the so-called Treaty of Fort Dade. Ethan Allen Hitchcock stated for his own opinion, since he negotiated directly with the Seminole leaders at Camp Izzard, he was satisfied. They really believed they were being cheated by the government in the inaction of at least the Fort Gibson portion of the removal treaty. In other words, they felt that the United States had acted in bad faith and they were acting accordingly. Hitchcock claims that he said something to them that, well, if that is the case, are you not satisfied with the blood of Dade's men, Thompson, etc., and, and others? And of course, that's when some of them signaled that they were, and that Osceola particularly signalized, as Hitchcock understood it, that with Thompson's death, he was satisfied. 
But when Scott received his orders, Gaines could not make a deal because he wasn't authorized to do so. He was there to enforce the removal. And Scott was ordered by President Jackson directly to enforce the removal under all circumstances. So there was no negotiation. How did Osceola impact the so-called Treaty of Fort Dade? The Army seemed to really like him because with Lacucci, he showed a valor that they appreciated. Because while he wasn't standing in the open, he was evidently behind a tree where they knew where he was and they could hear him yelling and they could see him. Some of the troops claimed he was wearing a U.S. officer's coat in the battle. So Osceola mingled among the officers. They liked him. He was good company and so forth. And he came and went as he pleased during these treaty negotiations. That, in turn, didn't turn out so well for the army, despite the Seminole supposedly agreeing to removal. Seminole's leadership agreed to abide by the removal treaties of Payne's Creek and Fort Gibson, that over a period of weeks they would come into camps. They would be fed by the army, and they would be brought to Tampa, and they would be sent west. Camps were established. There was one near Six Mile Creek near Tampa. They also established a large camp, temporary one, at Fort Mellon, modern Sanford. Osceola was at that one, and he interacted with many army officers there. Sometime in June, Osceola and a number of Miccosukees showed up all of a sudden in the evening at the camp on Six Mile Creek and carried off Micanope and the hundreds of Seminoles camped there with him. In the morning, Jessup woke up and he was told that all the Seminoles had flown the coop. So months and months of arrangement and lots and lots of federal money and rations and even some clothing, etc., had gone to nothing but to give the Seminoles a lengthy break, as it were, in the struggle to maintain themselves in the Florida wilderness without permanent villages and farms and so forth. Having been humiliated in this fashion, I can imagine General Jessup might have been humming a few bars of Alice Cooper's No More Mr. Nice Guy, had it, you know, been written and, you know, produced back then. So what Jessup considered the duplicity of the Seminoles at large in the Fort Dade agreement, he didn't really see any problem with securing Seminole leaders under the flags of truce as he did subsequently in September, October, November, when his troops under his command took Osceola prisoner under a white flag of parley near Fort Payton and also secured Micanope and several other leaders in the same manner. He had two wives, and I believe both of them were taken, one perhaps with him, and then another surrendered later. And I believe one of the wives was a Negro. Leaders were being held in Fort Marion, the Castillo de San Marcos during St. Augustine. Wildcat, perhaps, if it were possible, when he joined with them and told them of the situation of the prisoners in St. Augustine, of Osceola's illness, perhaps, because he evidently was visibly ill, which disease rendered him deceased within a couple of months. They were put on a boat and sent to Charleston and held at Fort Moultrie. And if they did escape from Fort Moultrie, which they didn't, it would have been very difficult for them to get back to Florida. (laughs) From there, they were sent west. Uh, Of course, Osceola had already died and was buried there at Fort Moultrie, where his grave remains today. Before we finish, and just so we all understand the jurisdiction issue, reiterate some of the arguments about jurisdiction from 1823 to the time of the Thompson assassination. Let's appreciate that after the Treaty of Moultrie Creek in 1823, the Seminoles were formerly a domestic dependent nation within the United States, which the Supreme Court under John Marshall had declared Indian tribes were essentially just that, dependent domestic nations within the United States jurisdiction. But you need something to govern relations between the two entities. And so 
we got treaties. The Seminoles and the federal government enacted mutually binding laws by treaty, not by legislation that came after the 1870s. So when you ask about jurisdiction regarding, say, the death of Thompson, well, by treaty, the Seminoles had a legal responsibility to round up criminals, whatever the Treaty of Moultrie Creek says. For example, just like the treaty says, it was their binding duty to round up and surrender runaway slaves that were in the Seminole nation and turn them over to the American authorities. But nevertheless, in late 1835, you know, any white man entering the Seminole reservation could only do so from the American boundary with the permission of the U.S. government. And once you entered into that boundary, you kind of did it at your own risk. So Wiley Thompson, as a government agent, he had the right to be present at the agency. He was welcome at the agency as the agent of the United States government to the Seminoles. Then he was given the duty by the U.S. government to enforce these treaties of removal that were very unpopular with those Seminoles. And so after a time, it was evident the Seminole leadership were either not in a position to protect Thompson, even if they had continued to desire to do so. And once the Seminole War commenced, in the Seminoles' eyes, Thompson was an enemy. In any case, after January 1836 to the U.S. government, the Seminole Reservation in Florida didn't exist any longer. Seminole Reservation now existed west of the Mississippi. So you had this population essentially of, they didn't use the term necessarily, but of outlaws, as it were. I've never seen any expectation iterated in my readings that the U.S. government expected the hostile Seminole leadership to turn over the killers of Thompson. There generally seemed to be an understanding that it was Osceola. Once he was captured, he was not put on trial. He was, in fact, at least after his death, while his body was evidently mutilated and some of his effects carried off by various parties. But generally, his remains were accorded military honors when they were buried at Fort Moultrie. And that seems to have been principally because during the course of the war, he had promoted a non-raiding strategy against the citizens outside of the Seminole boundaries. So while he may have killed the federal agent within the boundary, according to Ansel and some other accounts, he had opposed a raiding strategy of attacking the Americans outside of the boundaries. I believe that Prince quotes Ansel saying that he'd never even taken so much as a horse from a white man, etc. Yes, that's for outside the reservation. And within the reservation... An American couldn't enter an Indian reservation unless he had permission of the federal government from the federal side. Once he's in the reservation, he's now under the authority of the tribe that owns that reservation and owns that land. So Thompson was federal agent. He was in the Indian country. Had there been no war, how might the jurisdiction issue be worked out and justice be served? The Seminole War didn't break out. Just like in every other case, the federal government would have told the Seminole leadership, we would like you to turn over the killers, particularly if something had taken place outside of the boundary. But with the chaotic situation of the war, that wasn't possible. And once they did secure Osceola, who they believed was the killer of Thompson, and evidently Osceola didn't deny it, he was considered the least worrisome of the Seminole War leaders, considering he had opposed a raiding strategy against people outside of the Seminole boundary. So Thompson had the legal right to be at the agency. He had the duty to enforce the treaties of removal. And after a time, when it's evident that the Seminole leadership were not in a position to protect him, and maybe, in fact, any of the Seminole leadership were behind his killing. They either had no desire to protect him or out to get him. Jesse, you've teed us up, and we need to be, because you have a provocative presumption regarding 
justification within the jurisdiction of the reservation for the Seminole to assassinate Wiley Thompson. If you look at the transcripts so far as they exist, Thompson's negotiation with the Seminoles often brought up the Moultrie Creek Treaty of 1823, and if they were in earnest in their claims that they believed that the Payne's Landing and the Fort Gibson treaties were mistaken, their view was that they can't be legal because they contradict, in their view, the original Moultrie Creek Treaty. So in that sense, the Seminoles, if those reports are accurate, in a sense, the Seminoles were claiming that they're the ones that were promoting law and order by trying to enforce the Moultrie Creek Treaty. They claimed that it allowed them the Florida Reservation free and clear at least into the early 1840s, whereas, of course, Thompson comes among them and says, no, that's not what it says. In fact, now you have to move and we're going to negotiate this. So you see the Seminoles obviously were questioning Thompson's motives. He comes among them and he says that the the treaty that bound the U.S. and the Seminoles together, he's claiming that it still binds them, but they're going to change it. And the Seminoles obviously didn't want to change it. They didn't want to leave Florida. So you can see why, in, in that sense, the Seminoles may have considered Thompson the outlaw. In any event, Osceola's death at Fort Moultrie may have silenced the warrior while unleashing the myth. It was just a prelude to his life beyond the grave. 180 years or so later, he still remains a fixture in the popular imagination, the image of a proud, noble Indian warrior. That story will have to await a future episode. Jesse Marshall, thanks for sharing your perspective on Osceola and his life and impact on the Second Seminole War. And for joining us once again for the Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Well, I thank you, Patrick. I hope that I've made comments that might actually be useful for your podcast and might be useful to some of your listening public. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.